Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we'll be back to our usual format today. So we'll kick things off with a news roundup in which we'll cover three stories that have been in the news. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Snap, formerly Snapchat, which we talked about in depth a few episodes ago, but we'll just talk briefly about their launch of their new Spectacles product and also uh, the fact that they've apparently filed uh, confidentially for an IPO. Uh, we'll then talk about Twitter, which introduced some new filters this week to try to help combat abuse. Uh, and then thirdly, in the news roundup, we'll talk about this whole fake news story. And it was obviously something we covered in some depth last week, um, but it keeps uh, moving on in different ways. And so we'll talk about Facebook and Google in that context as well. Uh, secondly, we'll have our question of the week. And this week, our question is, what are the implications of Samsung's acquisition of Harman International? So you may have seen in the news over the last few days that Samsung uh, intends to acquire Harman, which is a maker of uh, lots of uh, audio and other gear and, and hardware and software for the car. Um, and so Aaron is going to be talking us through that one uh, in some detail, having, having done some research on that this week. And then our third segment, we'll be talking about uh, Apple. We'll be talking about the new MacBook Pro with the touch bar, which I've been reviewing over the last week or so. Uh, I, I posted a review of that this week to the Beyond Devices blog, and so we'll, we'll refer you to that, but we'll also I'll share some of my thoughts on that here. But we'll also talk about um, the new Apple design book that came out this week and, and what it perhaps tells us about Apple design in general. So uh, that will be the main content, and then we'll wrap up with a weekly pick in which I'll be recommending a movie. Uh, so let's kick off with the news roundup. Uh, and first up is Snap or Snapchat uh, with its Spectacles launch and this IPO filing. Aaron, what did you make of all this? Well, I, I guess we'll go with spectacles first. Um, these are becoming quite a phenomenon, which at first was surprising to me because the Google Glass project kind of crashed and burned. But uh, I read a great comment on Twitter, and it's, apparently somebody had said to a friend that they think of the, the spectacles primarily as sunglasses that just happen to have this Snapchat ability built into them. And so they're definitely a lot less weird that way as a product because somebody's just buying fancy sunglasses. I, I also think that when it comes to the spectacles, the way they're rolling these out is uh, uh, an act of marketing genius mm -hmm. with, the, with the vending machines popping up in random, well, not random, but, you know, unknown locations until they show up. And, you know, I, I, I expected them to show up in California like they did, but then the one, I think the most recent one showed up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which yep. was mm -hmm. just great. I mean, it really, it really did a great job of, uh, of sort of signaling about how far-reaching this can be. So I thought that was really cool as far as spectacles go. I, I think the IPO, they're estimating valuation from 25 to $40 billion when the IPO goes. Um, I think a lot of people are expecting a next Facebook in terms of what it can produce ad revenue-wise. And to be totally honest, I, I'm not sure that's unreasonable. I, mm -hmm. I think Snap, and you did a great job in the question of the week when we went through them last time. Um, but uh, I think Snap has a lot of stuff figured out, and they're definitely very innovative. And so it, it's an attractive stock, I think, that way for people to consider. Not that that's stock buying advice, obviously. We never do that <laughs> right. on the show. But, but I think it's, a, I think it's an, a really interesting and, and, frankly, an exciting company. So, yeah. yeah. So those are, I guess, yeah, those no, are the headline funny. thoughts. 
Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, yeah, so back in episode 64, we did a deep dive on uh, Snapchat, which had just rebranded as Snap and announced its Spectacles product. So go back and listen to that one if you haven't yet. But uh, yeah, I, I very much share your thoughts. I think that the marketing around the Spectacles has been brilliant at first. And I think the main question I've been asked by reporters over the last few days is kind of how does you know such limited distribution help them but of course this isn't going to be the way they're distributed for all time this is just kind of how they get things started and it creates massive buzz it creates desire it makes these um you know objects that people very much want to get their hands on and so it's a great way to kind of get interest and so on it's interesting that they withheld them from um, the usual publications that do reviews of new tech gadgets so they refuse to send reviews to all the big tech publications and mainstream business journals as well um, you know, which is an interesting move for a new tech gadget, uh, very different from how this stuff's normally done. Uh, but again, that means that the reviews are kind of viral, that people are seeking out views from ordinary people and so on. And, and you know, the comment you mentioned earlier was, I think, written by somebody who um, had wrote for a review for TechCrunch, but, uh, you know, I think was quoting somebody, uh, or even, I can't remember if it was maybe even himself saying that he thinks of them primarily sunglasses. But, you know, that's the big difference in my mind between this and Google Glass is, you know, Google Glass was a, brand new product category, um, you know, they had no reason to wear unless you wanted to do the things that Google Glass did, whereas, you know, these spectacles are basically sunglasses, um, you know, and people are used to paying over $100 for sunglasses, you know, whether it's, you know, Ray-Bans or whether it's some other, you know, relatively high-end brand, you're, you're easily paying into the $100. If you go into Sunglass Hut or somewhere, you'll see lots of glasses in the sort of $100 to $200 range and above. Uh, so it's not outlandish from that perspective. They're quite distinctive looking, obviously, but uh, looks like they do a great job at what they do. And, you know, it's a, it's a great bit of marketing. Uh, you know, from an IPO perspective, I'm very much looking forward to when the, the documents go public because it's always a great insight into a company and kind of how they're growing. And there have been lots of stories over the years about Snapchat and its finances, but getting the actual finances and really being able to dive into them is something I always enjoy doing. So I'll be looking forward to that S1 when it files, uh, when it's made public. Uh, well, let's go on to talk about Twitter. Um, it introduced several tools this week that are intended to combat abuse. A lot of them were about uh, muting and filters. Uh, and essentially, basically, uh, Twitter's now giving users tools to specify uh, individual words or uh, usernames or uh, even uh, specify particular conversations that they want to mute and therefore not see notifications for. And so this is one way to kind of combat um, people getting bombarded with abuse and so on. And so you can... Uh, go through the rather painful process of writing down a bunch of words that you find offensive that you don't want to receive notifications for. Um, it's a fairly blunt instrument. You have to kind of do this retrospectively. I mean, uh, sorry, not retrospectively, prospectively. You have to do it ahead of time in order for it to do any good. So you have to kind of guess ahead of time what offensive things people might tweet at you uh, and then list those words. Um, you know, as I say, this is probably a painful process to go through, but um, you know, we've discussed before kind of the, the challenges of trying to have a universal blacklist because what's an offensive word to one person might be a term of endearment to another and, and you don't want to censor those things universally. Um, so there's some progress here, but it, it does feel like a bit of a blunt instrument and it doesn't actually remove the content. Uh, it just stops you from receiving notifications for it, which is not quite the same thing. So interesting step. Um, to me, at least, it feels like it doesn't probably go far enough and it sounds like it's the first of a number of steps that Twitter will be taking. Well, and then the other thing that happened was they banned some a uh, handful of Twitter accounts that were associated with the alt-right movement in the United States right now. Those bans are already proving to be controversial, but that was always going to be the case um, yeah. once they started uh, banning people for abuse. And, and, you know, it's not the first time they've done it, but it's the first time they've done it at this scale. 
and in a way that was, had such high publicity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, this is Twitter deciding its future and its voice. Um, it's funny because, you know, there's a, the, the argument against this is to say that it sort of contradicts the, the fundamental American value of free speech. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of nuance in there, and never mind the fact that Twitter is a private company and can do whatever it wants with its product. Right. Um, but uh, expect the the discussion around that to heat up quite a bit as as Twitter, mm -hmm. you know, has to decide: do we do we leave this as as a as a agnostic platform for all points of view, um, or do we really try to go after the the fringe um, and sometimes very abusive uh, uh, accounts that are on Twitter right now? So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. A, you know, I don't want to, this is more than just dipping their toe in the water. This was yeah, for sure. taking a, a proactive step, but, uh, mm -hmm. but it'll be interesting to see if they stand by it, right, as, uh, yeah. as the controversy heats up. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, you've got these filters and muting options now, which don't feel like they go far enough, and then you could argue that this goes a bit too far. Uh, I think specifically you could argue that, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, who was banned a couple of months ago for basically organizing hordes of trolls to unleash themselves on, you know, hit the targets of his particular uh, ire or, or just dislike, um, you know, he was banned for being a troll, essentially banned for, you know, really abusive and, and offensive and harassing behavior. Uh, these accounts, you know, some of them, yes, have been guilty of that kind of behavior, but some of them are being banned simply because they represent particular ideology. Uh, it's not a very attractive ideology at all. You know, we talked last week about all the unpleasant stuff that's been unleashed over the last week. But, uh, you know, the fact is, if you're about free speech, then that kind of speech is generally okay, even if you dislike it, whereas it's kind of abuse and harassment that uh, that Twitter has banned in the past. And so this does seem to be a step into new territory where some of these accounts at least are being banned because uh, they promote a particular worldview rather than because they're actually attacking individual users or making threatening remarks or anything like that. So I think that's going to be the challenging part here. It was very much a kind of coordinated effort to ban several of these accounts at once. Uh, and the one thing they share isn't their behavior, it's their ideology. And I think that's right. what's going to be tricky here for Twitter. Yeah. Um, kind of related to that, and again, topic we covered last week in depth as we talked about the election, uh, is fake news. And... Uh, again, we talked about Facebook in depth last week. We didn't really talk about Google, and they kind of came into this this week in a couple of different ways. Uh, Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has made additional comments about uh, Facebook's perspective on uh, fake news and, and has said, you know, that they, they take this seriously. He's kind of been defensive about it and, and so on, uh, kind of talking about, well, only, you know, 99% of the content people share is real news and so on. But that, of course, implies the other 1% might be fake news, and, and with a base of 1.8 billion users, that could still be very significant. Um, but Google uh, this week did a couple of things. Sundar Pichai, CEO of Google, um, talked about the fact that he felt that the fake news may have swayed the election result, which is a pretty significant statement for him to make. Uh, but Google also banned its ads from appearing on uh, third-party websites that host fake news. And so this doesn't stop driving traffic to these sites. And to be fair, a lot of the traffic comes from Facebook rather than Google in this case. Uh, but it should stop these sites from making money through Google, which is an interesting step. So it feels like a much more forceful step than anything Facebook has done so far in this direction. Well, yeah. And you know, it's frustrating to me about the Facebook side um, more than the naivete that I think Facebook has has had as they face this problem for what's been going on for a long time now. 
I, I think what's frustrating is it, it, the answer is maybe a little more obvious um, than people realize. I mean, I, I don't think it's okay for Facebook to go around banning um, uh, articles just on their own, right, where they have sort of this internal review team that decides whether or not news is true. And the reason that it's not okay is because there are going to be so many borderline cases or opinion pieces or any number of other things that just won't meet general standards, uh, that that won't meet obvious standards, I should say, of, of truthfulness or, or, or falsehood. And but But, yeah, I mean, the reason these stories are getting shared is because of Facebook's user base. It's not Facebook that's promoting these stories. It's the users that are. And so why not use the users to vet the stories? I mean, why not have a way for me when I'm on Facebook to see an article and to look at it? I click on it, I read it, and I realize that it's bogus. Why not have a way for me to indicate that to Facebook? And then as that article shows up in other people's news feeds, that they can say, you know, it can come along with a, a message that essentially says, you know, a, a, a substantial portion of Facebook users or X percent of the people in your network or I don't know what else. You know, or even the names of people who indicated that they were fake it, it, that are in my social circle um, could essentially every article would come with that with that user assessment of its truthfulness so or not. Warning. Yeah, and it, and and then and then I'm left to make that choice for myself, right? Where I still have the freedom to evaluate it on my own, but I do it subject to the warning that uh, other people have indicated that they don't think the information in the article is true. I, I think there's a lot of power in that. You know, it, it helps me see, okay, this is what other people have thought. If there are smart people in my feed that I really admire who have indicated that, it puts me on notice. But yet I can evaluate it for myself, and it doesn't have to get filtered out of my news feed necessarily. Um, right. There's always going to be a marketplace of ideas. That's a fundamental mm -hmm. constitutional principle from the First Amendment. And, and, and that phrase, marketplace of ideas, which is a really valuable metaphor, implies the idea that we evaluate what's worthwhile information and what's not, and we can make that choice for ourselves. The trick is just Facebook taking a more proactive effort to help its users inform each other better on, on the quality of information they're getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's algorithmic, more kind of human-driven, but driven by the user base rather than by Facebook employees. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, it's uh, another idea would be, you know, give users the opportunity to, to post another article that contradicts it or that, you know, Snopes or something has said it's not true or whatever, you know. So rather than just right. being somebody's opinion that it's not true, kind of linked to something that is reputable that debunks it or, or tells the truth about the same subject or something. That would be another interesting element or something like that, I think. That would be awesome, even just on opinion pieces. Could you imagine if every yeah. time you got an opinion piece in your Facebook feed, it came with a counterpoint? Yeah. Oh, man, yeah, that would be just so enriching. Yeah, it's interesting. I had somebody I was connected to on Twitter was um, uh, reached out to me a while ago saying that he was working on a product that would basically present two sides of the same story around, I, I'm not sure it was around Facebook or if it was his own social network, I can't remember the details, but it sounded like a fascinating idea, but it, it feels like Facebook itself kind of has to introduce something like this where it would yeah. you know, at least give you the option of seeing an alternative viewpoint around the same subject. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, it would be. All right. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said up front, the question this time around is, what are the implications of Samsung's acquisition or proposed acquisition of Harman International? And this is an uh, interesting company, which we'll talk about in, in depth in a minute, but uh, very active in the automotive space, owns a lot of audio assets in particular, but uh, it's broader than that as well. And so Aaron's been doing some research about this acquisition this week. Um, 
you know, there's been some discussion about, you know, should Apple have acquired this company instead, and if so, why or why not? And uh, so we're going to talk through the implications of, uh, of Samsung buying. We're going to talk about what Samsung's buying here, you know, how it's going to help it, how the two are going to work together, and ultimately what the impact will be on the broader market. So I'll be asking the questions, and Aaron will be shedding some light on some of these subjects. Um, so Aaron, let's kick off by just uh, talking about what exactly is Samsung buying here? What is Harman kind of, what, what kind of company is this, and, and what's part of it? Well, Samsung's buying the whole kit and caboodle, the whole company. Um, it's an acquisition price of around $8 billion or $112 per share. They're paying cash from cash on hand. Um, and so this is all obviously subject to regulatory approval. It's also subject to approval by the Harman International shareholders. Um, but, uh, but that's the essence of the deal. Um, the $112 share price is a 28% bump over the share price that Harman had when the deal was announced. Um, the market is, right now, Harman is sitting at about $109 per share. So market is adjusted and, and um, the people who I guess wanted to get out before the purchase have done that. Um, the, the $112 per share is not a pinnacle for Harman. They were actually, according to the New York Times, they were, they were at about $145 per share not quite two years ago. Um, that share price went down because there were concerns about one of Harman's business units that uh, since then has turned around, but the share price hasn't fully recovered from that $145 high. The company itself um, organizes it, organizes its business around three, or sorry, around four product categories. Um, there's connected car. Um, that's the one that's gotten the most press attention, and we'll discuss that in greater depth in, in just a minute. Um, there's lifestyle audio. Um, this is where uh, Harman carries a bunch of its brands, and this is where most consumers are going to be familiar with Harman. Uh, for example, they might have Harman Kardon speakers or Harman Kardon sound system in their car. Um, another really famous brand that's uh, owned by Harman is JBL. Uh, JBL has some really popular Bluetooth speakers that have done really well. Um, but there are a bunch of others. There's Bowers and Wilkins, uh, Infinity, uh, Mark Levinson. These are all, uh, 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 sorry, uh, Revel, Revel. These are all various audio brands that, uh, um, that are all under the Harman umbrella uh, in that lifestyle audio category. Um, there's professional solutions. That's the third category. Um, that's, that's essentially professional audio, especially venues. So they'll go in and do major installations in various venues. This is a business that's really common to a lot of audio, uh, to speaker manufacturers and other audio companies. They'll have this sort of high-end professional service that they do to set up venues. And then the last one is called Connected Services. This is the newest of the categories. It's also the smallest, um, and it's but it's the one where they expect a lot more growth. And in that, they have three subcategories. There's Internet of Things, uh, Data Analytics, and then finally just General Engineering, the idea being that Harman could be brought in to engineer all kinds of things because they're good at engineering all kinds of things now. Um, primarily, though, uh, that business would be in audio engineering. Um, the, like I said, Connected Car has gotten the most press attention. 65% um, so of Harman's sales as a company are to automotive customers, that meaning car companies. So that's a lot of revenue going to car, or coming from car companies. Um, a, a chunk of that goes through, obviously, the Connected Car business. That accounts for about 45% of Harman's revenue. 
Another chunk comes through the lifestyle audio business, which includes their car speakers and sound systems. Um, and that's that, that lifestyle audio is about 31% of revenue. Um, Harman, the company, uh, for the last few years, has been growing at a pretty steady pace. Um, they saw a 12% growth in revenue last fiscal year, and so they're at $6.9 billion in revenue as of uh, June of this year. Um, though earnings per share during that year only grew by about 3%, uh, which was $4.99 a share. Um, that was apparently largely, though, the, the difference between the growth in revenue and, and the growth in EPS was apparently largely due to some acquisitions and some foreign exchange troubles that Harman wasn't the only company to experience. It's a big company in terms of employees. It's got 26,000 employees worldwide. Um, the three biggest locations for those are the U.S. It's a Connecticut-based company. Um, but they also have thousands of employees in India and in China. Um, Samsung will be buying Harman with the intention of maintaining them as a standalone subsidiary. Um, so there won't be a big merger happening. This is just a straight acquisition. Um, although, even though it's a straight acquisition and, and, and Harman's going to remain an independent subsidiary, um, both companies are making a big deal out of the shared expertise and resources that they're going to be able to leverage together. Okay, so you talked about this connected car business, and that, that sounds like it's the biggest chunk of the overall business. What exactly is Samsung getting here? So kind of what's part of that? Yeah, so in the connected car business, Harman basically sells touchscreen infotainment systems that are built into many cars today. Um, and, and, and it's under a lot of different brands. Um, there are 30 million cars right now that have Harman technology in them. Uh, their customers include BMW, Daimler, Fiat Chrysler, Ford, GM, Hyundai, Toyota Lexus, Volkswagen. There are a bunch of other smaller auto manufacturers in that list. Um, these devices, this hardware is, uh, you know, the touchscreen and then the way it sort of connects into everything else about the car. Um, diagnostic systems that can be reported on the screen, control of audio and, and, uh, and you know, climate controls and all that kind of stuff, that basically these whole systems are sold, the hardware packages are sold by, by Harman to these auto manufacturers. Um, uh, the, plat the hardware is, is largely software agnostic, um, so manufacturers can use whatever software platform they want pretty much. I mean, QNX, Linux, Android, uh, HTML5 even. Um, basically, whatever software platform that the manufacturer prefers that they can, they can have running on this Harman hardware. Um, although I will say they, they also, with this hardware, offer smartphone integration, um, which is a software package that they install. Um, and and the and the smartphone integration works well with both CarPlay and Android Auto. So, uh, so that's the basic product. Harman in this space is the number two company. So this is a space we would call uh, uh, infotainment and telematics. Um, and I'll talk a little more about telematics in a minute. Um, but Harman has about 10.8% market share in this space. Uh, the number one company is Panasonic, but they've only got 11.5% market share. Number three is Pioneer at 7.5%. And so this actually tells us this is a pretty competitive space where the, 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 the three largest uh, collectively don't even account for 30% of the market. So there's still a ton of competition in this infotainment and telematics uh, market. Samsung, for its part, this is really interesting, has no presence in auto uh, until this acquisition, actually. They've only, in fact, they only started in earnest last year. 
um, when they formed uh, what they call their automotive electronics business team. And the purpose of that team was to find the best entry point for Samsung into the consumer auto space and the technology space. And uh, presumably their recommendation was to buy Harman International because that's the direction that Samsung is going. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about telematics. Telematics is interesting for Harman because this is going to be a rapidly growing business for them if if they continue to do well. Telematics essentially describes the way cars talk to the Internet and the ways they connect with each other as well. Um, so this is going to so telematics is for technologies for things like emergency phone calls, traffic flow, um, being able to check in at a place uh, when you pull up so you can get you know parking automatically taken care of. There's a lot in the future for the way the cars talk to each other and talk to devices and to the internet generally that it, there's a lot of growth there as far as uh, consumer experience is concerned in telematics. Um, there's also interesting space, though, in the commercial side, in commercial vehicles. Um, this is going to be for things like fleet tracking. There's already there's already a lot of this out there, but the technology can improve dramatically. Um, in fact, just in the cons- commercial vehicle space, the telematics uh, market size is projected to be about $47 billion by 2020. And that's just for commercial fleets. The, the reality, though, is that if... If self-driving cars turn cars into services rather than, than purchases, which is a pretty reasonable prediction in, in, in my opinion, you know, I think a lot of us are, are not going to own cars in the future. We're just going to subscribe to car sharing services where the self-driving car comes and picks us up and all of that. If that, if that future plays out, then telematics will be a, a, an absolutely massive, massive product category for Harman and any other company to be a part of. Um, and so that's an exciting future. And I think this is the sort of thing that Samsung probably has its eyes on. Um, the connected car business includes a few other products. Um, they have safety systems, you know, tire pressure warnings, all that kind of stuff built in. Um, and then also software security is an interesting one. And uh, this is interesting specifically for Harman because a year ago, August, there was, uh, there was news that broke that some researchers had successfully cracked into or hacked into a Jeep uh, while it was driving. So you can be this, the fear is that you'll be driving a car along the road and then all of a sudden hackers can, can essentially break, you know, electronically break into your car and, and once they could do that, they could trip security systems. They, you know, they could, they could cause a car to break, kill the engine, any number of other kind of scary things. And so, so Harman has actually made a big deal lately out of its software security features that it's building into its uh, connected car products. Um, the funny thing is that it really actually wasn't Harman's fault. It was it was because uh, Fiat Chrysler had misconfigured. Um, the connected car systems that they were installing and essentially left a port open. <laughs> so if you're familiar with how oh, yeah. internet ports work, they, <laughs> they left a port open and that's how it got hacked. And so, right. um, but anyway, Harman's made a big deal out of that. And so that's kind of the full perspective on the connected car business. There's a lot of exciting potential in this space and Harman's already got a pretty healthy business as it is. And that's one of the things Samsung has made a big deal out of is that, is that they're, they're already pulling in a profitable business with this acquisition. Right. Yeah. No. It seems to be a, a pretty healthy business in terms of profit margins and, and growth and so on. 
Um, what, what will customers get then? So we talked a little bit about what Samsung's going to get by buying Harman, but you know, if you're a customer of either Samsung or Harman or just cars, um, what will you get out of this? You know, what's going to come out of this acquisition, especially given that it's apparently going to be managed as a sort of standalone business within Samsung? Yeah, this is where I think things get pretty interesting. Um, though customers probably won't see any dramatic new products as a result of this, at least not anytime soon. I think the more likely result is that we'll see improved products in terms of the consumer tech that's built into cars today. Um, Samsung, and they, they, the way they've talked about this in their pitch to investors, um, is they say they're bringing expertise in three primary areas. They're saying they're bringing their mobility expertise, uh, semiconductor expertise, and display expertise. Um, and, these are, and the reality is these are all three areas in which, in which uh, automotive tech could be a lot better. Um, if you think about the system that a lot of cars still don't even have these these uh, touchscreen infotainment systems in them, uh, although they are becoming a lot more common for new cars, but but most people still don't have these in their cars, um, you know, because they bought a car, f you know, four or five years ago when it was an upgrade instead of a standard package. Um, uh, but if you think about it, these are all three areas, mobility, semiconductor, and displays where car tech has been definitely behind the curve as far as, as, uh, as consumer technology is concerned. And mobility, I, I, I will admit it's not as clear that car tech can get a lot better. Um, the, Harman has been using Broadcom as a supplier for mobility um, for years now. Um, I, I think Samsung, though, will have things to add. And if nothing else, Samsung just simply may make Harman products cheaper because of the marriage between Harman and Samsung, where they can provide mobility tech because they're obviously good at it. They've been making smartphones and cell phones for years. Um, you know, even if it just makes the mobility uh, offerings cheaper so that Harman can be more price competitive that way. Um, I think that's uh, going to be an advantage to consumers. Uh, semiconductor is where I think there's a chance for big gains. Um, Harman uses ARM for all of its products, and Samsung is fantastic at producing ARM chips. Um, they're, they're really a world leader in that space. Um, and as, as car computers need to process more and more information, which will increasingly be the case, especially as telematics continue to take off and cars are talking to each other. You drive into a parking space and it automatically, you know, pays the parking meter for you. Like all this kind of stuff that cars are going to have to process. It's going to the amount of information that these computers built into cars need to manage will will grow exponentially. I think in the near future, um, the the quality semiconductors, the the and the systems on a chip that are baked into these. Uh, they're going to make a huge difference. And I think this is a space where uh, Samsung's partnership with Harman makes a lot of sense and where Samsung can add a lot. Um, displays is another area where, I don't know, I, I have yet to have a great experience with an in-car system and uh, in terms of just the display tech, both in the quality of the display, like the look of it, and also the, the touch response of the display. They just generally don't work as well as, as say, you know, as Samsung Galaxy phone or an iPhone or, or something else like that. Um, I, I think uh, displays can also uh, be a lot sleeker. They can be brighter, sharper. Um, they can be slimmer for applications like headrests. These are all areas in which Samsung is very skilled. And, uh, and, and I think Harman's technology, because they've been the ones sort of designing and producing these screens themselves, and, and, uh, and it's just not, it's not, gonna, it's not as good as what Samsung can help them do. 
Um, and so I think you're going to see a lot of improvement in this area. So these are all ways that uh, these are all ways that the existing technology that consumers are seeing in new cars will improve over time. I think because of this relationship. But I would add just a couple other things, and this is based on the way Harman and, and Samsung are talking about this merger. Um, one, look for a lot more Harman audio technology going into Samsung products. Um, Samsung makes a lot of different kinds of stuff. A lot of this stuff has speakers uh, built into it. I think you can expect to see them leveraging brands in this relationship. So don't be surprised if there's going to be a Harman Kardon design speaker system in like something like a tablet, right, that, that Samsung makes. I mean, I, I think you're going to see uh, leveraging brands in that sense. Um, but, you know, both companies have been talking about this in a way that makes it sound like they're expecting this technology to translate into a lot of other areas. Um, in fact, in their, in their investor sort of pitch, um, they identify how they expect to improve venues, uh, like big displays in stadiums or, 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 or uh, like concert halls, uh, improving audio and video, lighting and, and controls of all these things. Uh, obviously, in cars, they expect uh, to to see a lot of improvements, but not just in the not just in the in the consumer tech we've been talking about, but also in artificial intelligence, big data analytics, voice control. Um, you know, Samsung has another recent big acquisition of voice control, and so there's a lot of stuff that's going to translate there. And then finally, just the general Internet of Things, including in the home. In fact, that's one of the areas that they called out specifically where they see room for growth in this partnership is Internet of Things. And, and I think Samsung might have some ideas of ways to leverage Internet of Things, uh, to, sorry, to leverage harm and technology into that space. And so you might see some brand new products down the road from Samsung based on Harman technology. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about these stories where people talk about connecting the car and the home is always, you know, you make those purchases entirely separately. Like right. when you're buying a home or building a home in the rare cases that people build their own homes, you're not necessarily thinking about, is this going to work with my car? Right. <laughs> when you buy a car, you don't necessarily have, this will work with my house as one of your major purchasing criteria. So it'll be very interesting, especially given kind of the relatively low market share that that any provider has in, in the connected car space, um, you know, how this is going to work. Uh, and so I'm very interested to see, you know, does Samsung, for example, start to favor Harman manufacturer in car systems? You know, is that going to be the one type of system that, that supports Samsung devices best, for example? So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, what, what do you see as the broader impact then, to kind of return to our big picture question, what's the broader impact on, on the consumer tech landscape from this acquisition? Well, in the silicon space, there are probably some changes afoot there. Harman relies on Texas Instruments, Broadcom, Intel, and Qualcomm for all of its silicon, and that's probably going to change really dramatically because Samsung is moving in. Uh, it's hard to say exactly which products will be affected um, uh, you know, and which businesses will be hurt by how much, but any of those four companies should should be sensitive to the idea that Samsung is going to be pulling business away from uh, from them. Um, Harman has been trying to push into new markets, and they've been talking about that for the last two years. Um, they want to reach more than just North America and Europe, and Samsung can help a lot with that. They have a lot of experience in, in other markets, including emerging markets. Um, I, I think one of the biggest things it does, though, is it adds another tech giant into the car space. Um, you know, it, when we've talked about tech giants in, in the car space, we've talked primarily about Apple, Google, and Apple is speculatively Google because of the self-driving cars thing, and Tesla. 
um, this is going to add another tech giant into the space with Samsung. Um, in fact, this is what makes me, my mind now goes to the, to the John Gruber reference. There was a ZDNet article that essentially made the case that, that Apple blew it on this one, that they should have been the ones to acquire Harman instead of Sam, letting Samsung get away with it. It's funny because there have been the same Apple, for whatever reason, anytime there's a big acquisition in consumer tech, it, there's somebody who writes an article that says, oh, Apple should have bought them. I don't know if it's just because Apple has a really fat bank account, <laughs> but right. but it seems to be something that people always imply. I, I don't at all agree with the idea that Apple should have bought Harman, um, and and not just because it, um, uh, and not just for the reasons that John Gerber mentioned. He said, you know, this is a conglomerate type purchase. This isn't a focus company type purchase, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but you know, digging into the details, it, it it adds even more weight to this idea that it would have been a bad purchase for Apple. I mean, first of all, it would have been Apple's biggest single acquisition by two and a half times over. If you can, I mean, Beats is the previous biggest acquisition. If you compare that with Harman, if the, Apple had paid the same price, which you assume they would have done, uh, it would have been a, a, a much much bigger acquisition for them financially. It also would have increased the number of employees at Apple by about twenty five percent which would be a huge increase in the number of employees for Apple to be managing. Um, mm. It would have added almost a dozen brands to Apple's portfolio. This, to me, is the craziest one. I mean, Harman manages a lot of different brands. Uh, some of them are sort of small and niche because they're especially important in the professional audio space. Some of them are very well-known brands like JBL and Harman Kardon. Right. And as it is, Apple right now manages two brands, two they manage their own brand and beats, and that's it. And so the idea that they would have added almost a dozen other brands to their brand portfolio is a crazy, crazy thought. Um, the, the reality is, is, as Apple continues to move into the car space, and we're going to have to see what happens because it sounds like that's cooled recently, but you know who knows what's going on behind closed doors there. Um, Apple's going to hire to get into this space. That's just the way they're going to do it. You know, they, 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 uh, this, the things they need are skills, and the skills they need are hireable. Really what they're gonna need in the car space is sales expertise, and whether or not that's selling you know, Apple branded cars directly to customers, or if it's selling you know, Apple integrated systems to car manufacturers, they'll need people who are good and, and, and understand the sales process for these kinds of products. And they need engineering, and they've already shown that in the car space they're capable of hiring a lot of people quickly, and also very talented and notable people to get them up to speed in terms of car tech. And so the idea that uh, Apple needs to make an acquisition the size of, of this Harman Samsung acquisition uh, in order to be competitive in this space, uh, I just, it doesn't resonate with me. And it all it doesn't at all feel like the way Apple does things. So, right. yeah, I mean, the reality is what this all comes down to, back to the acquisition, um, the story here is really untold. I mean, like any acquisition, right? It, the there's there's a future there that has yet to reveal itself, but I will say this: I, I think this one is more obviously promising than other big acquisitions have been that we've seen. Um, and mm -hmm. I say that because there's clear complementarity here between Samsung's right. abilities and Harman's abilities. And uh, I think having the resources and the knowledge that they'll be able to share, plus Samsung's brand penetration, which is really big, not just in smartphones but in all kinds of areas. I think that this is going to be, my prediction is this will be a really fruitful uh, acquisition and partnership. But, you know, time yeah. will tell. Right, right. No, that's great. 
Thank you, Aaron. That, that's really interesting. I, I haven't, to be honest, spent a lot of time reading about this deal, so it's been great to get kind of a deeper dive into exactly what Samsung's getting and so on. But uh, absolutely concur with your conclusions on Apple. I mean, this fits a lot more with Samsung's business, which is A, very broad already in the consumer electronics space, but B, you know, they have that very strong presence in sort of the back end stuff too. So chips and displays and, and various other components that go into these things where there's an obvious, as you said, complementarity between the two companies. So it makes a ton of sense, I think. So yeah, very interesting to see how this plays out. Um, well, let's go to our third segment. And, and here we're really gonna talk about Apple for a while. Um, I, I had uh, a review of the new MacBook Pro with Touch Bar that I uh, published on Monday morning along with all the other uh, reviews that were published when the embargo lifted. Um, I received mine on Thursday last week, so uh, I had mine for about four days before I published the review. Uh, so slightly less time with it than some of the other reviewers, but uh, I published that review. We'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, ultimately, you know, really solid piece of hardware. Um, you know, and uh, I focused on a couple of things in the review. One was um, the sort of power side of things. So there have been some criticisms that at 16 gigs uh, max of RAM that it was underpowered for what a lot of professionals want to do with it. Um, I put it through quite a few tests with regard to that. So I uh, you know, ran Final Cut Pro on it and did some editing there, some 4K video. Uh, I then ran Adobe Premiere and did some very heavy duty analysis um, for stabilization on, on a f another 4K video that had really bad rolling shutter issues in it. Um, you know, and really kind of pushed the limits on it in terms of those things. Uh, and it performed just fine. You know, it didn't get overly hot. It didn't uh, slow down. It, I was able to uh, do other things in Keynote and Numbers and other applications while those things were running in the background. You know, I, I uh, took some screenshots of the Activity Monitor app uh, while I was doing those things. I didn't end up including them in the review, but there was no point at which it really seemed to be laboring, seemed to be managing the memory resource allocation very well between the different applications. Uh, so my ultimate conclusion on the power side was, you know, this this computer is very capable of doing most of the sort of standard creative professional type tasks you'd want to throw at it. It's not to say it's going to be the fastest computer for doing those things. There may well be a Mac Pro or an iMac or just a high-end Windows machine that could do those things faster um, with more cores, more RAM, and so on. Um, but it's perfectly adequate for somebody who occasionally needs to get some work done uh, out of the office or even somebody who was happy to, to have those things just take a little bit longer uh, when the occasion needed to use them, this would be a perfectly fine machine. It's not the most powerful, it's not gonna be right for everybody, uh, but it was really just fine on that side. And uh, you know, I think the one exception might be 3D, people working with a lot of 3D stuff uh, might need a more powerful machine. And I, I had at least one commenter on the review talk about his 3D workflows that really uh, need a minimum of 16 gigabytes of RAM. So that was interesting. Um, uh, the other thing that I focused on was the touch bar itself, and it's obviously the most interesting aspect is the thing that's brand new with this computer and, and unique to it. Um, I, I found it was you know, really a nice thing to have, a nice addition to, to the, the computer. I, I, the analogy that I used in the review, and I'll use again now, is learning to touch type. So if you learn to touch type having become somewhat proficient with the sort of hunt and peck method using two fingers, uh, it, it's kind of painful because you have to break habits, you have to uh, really slow yourself down, you have to force yourself to do things in a new way. And oftentimes that means you're actually slower as a typist than you were before. And, and it could be tempting to go back to the way you always used to do things uh, because it just feels like you're going backwards. But then you get to a certain point where you kind of break the back of it 
you start getting good at touch typing and suddenly uh, you know you, you get faster and faster and faster and you're much quicker than you ever were hunting and pecking and you have the added benefit that you can look up at the screen rather than having to look down at your fingers while you're typing and so on and so forth and so I think that's the analogy here for the touch bar is that you have to remember to use it it's not so bright that it really you know is constantly drawing your attention to it it's kind of subtle and so you have to remember that it's there that it's an option for some of these tasks uh, but that as you do that, you know, you suddenly find that speeds all kinds of things up. And so a good example of that is, you know, I work a lot in numbers, uh, compiling uh, various financial and operating data for lots of consumer technology companies. And, uh, you know, I often have to, you know, create formulas and then uh, fill those through a row or whatever. Well, there's now an autofill button on the touch bar within numbers so that you just oh, hit cool. autofill. You tell it the direction you want it to go in. You know, it'll go to the end of the row if you're at the beginning of the row. It'll go to the beginning of the row if you're at the end of the row. It'll go up or down to, to the top row, the bottom row, whatever you want to do. Um, and so, you know, rather than having to kind of drag the edge of the cell across, which is what I usually do, I just hit autofill and then direction and boom, it's done. You know, it's very quick. Uh, and there's lots of little things like that. And in and of itself, does that save me hours of time? No, it saves me you know, a few seconds. But if that's a repetitive task, one that you do a lot, that time quickly adds up. And then you look at similar things across lots of different applications, and suddenly you know, you're talking about reasonably uh, significant savings in time. And so uh, you know, it's really good for that. It's not everywhere yet. So there, there were uh, about a dozen um, app, third-party applications that supported it right when the, the new section in the App Store launched. There's more than that now. It's probably at about 20 at this point. Uh, there's a lot of big names coming that aren't there yet, so Photoshop and Office and things like that aren't there yet, but will be coming soon. Um, so there's a lot more to come, um, but there are a lot of places where you don't use it yet, and so it's partly about remembering where it's useful and where it isn't and that kind of thing. I haven't used the autocorrect stuff a ton. I find that if you're typing very fast, it doesn't keep up with you well enough um, to, to be useful, but if you're typing relatively slowly, if you're holding a baby in one arm, as I discovered, and trying to type with the other, it can be quite useful. Um, but you know, I haven't used that side of it very much. The emojis are nice if you use emojis. I tend not to do it that much. And, and there's obviously uh, the, the control command space shortcut will give you emojis uh, in Mac OS if you don't have the touch bar today. So uh, there are other ways to do that, but it's a fun little uh, thing to have access to quickly there. Um, but yeah, in general, nice little time saver, uh, quite handy. Um, so yeah, that was that was good. Generally, I was pretty positive on the touch bar, and then uh, you know the rest of it. It's an Apple computer. It's thinner. It's lighter. It's beautiful looking. Uh, you know this, the display on this thing's fantastic. The speakers are really good on the 15-inch one that I've been testing. Uh, very loud. You know, perfectly adequate for watching a movie or something. The screen's fantastic for video too. Um, battery life's been kind of mixed. If you're doing casual stuff with a screen on less than full brightness, it will last you all day, like like most MacBooks have for a few years now. If you're doing those very intensive tasks and you have the screen at full brightness, it might last four or five hours. It really makes a huge difference as to what tasks you're engaged in and, and how bright the screen is and so on. So uh, that's, that's something I would mention there. And, and I wasn't quite in a position to judge that on Monday. I hadn't used it enough to really uh, get, it, get that picture clear. But uh, you know, given a couple of extra days, it's now fairly clear that there is a real range there. And I think other people have said similar things. Um, I like the keyboard a lot. It hasn't been an issue for me adjusting from either the, the Apple extended keyboard that I use with my Mac Pro or the MacBook Air keyboard that I've been using. Got used to it very, very quickly. The one thing is it, it was kind of noisy at first until I learned to sort of moderate the weight with which I was typing. And, and at this point, it's probably not much louder than the keyboards I was using before. So that's kind of a quick summary. You can read the review for, I think, about 4,000 words of detail and <laughs> stuff. But um, that, that's about my take on it. Yeah, I'm excited for... 
the way developers figure out to put the touch bar to use. Um, it sounds yeah. like Apple has done some things to show the way and and like a lot of new products, uh, new concepts like this, you know, developers might take a little while to figure it out. I think it's ironic because the touch bar apparently is based on watch technology and, you know, Apple watch technology. And I think developers are going to have an easier time figuring out what to do with the, what to do with the touch bar than they've had figuring out what to do with the watch. <laughs> but yes, yeah, but it has everything to do with the context, right? So, I, yeah, I'm excited yeah. to see what other developers come up with to put it to use. I won't be surprised mm -hmm. if you see some pretty ingenious little things like even little games and stuff that rely heavily on it. So Yeah, no, I'm very interested to see what happens there. Yeah. Um, so we, we also wanted to briefly talk about um, this design book that Apple uh, released this week. Um, it's uh, several hundred dollars. It's not cheap. It's uh, sort of a showcase of Apple product designs, mostly photographs, very few words uh, other than in the introduction. A um, bunch of new photographs that Apple's had commissioned. It, it sounds like something they've been working on for several years. Uh, sounds like it's partly driven by a desire to kind of catalog some of what's been done in the past for the design team itself. They realized that they didn't even have uh, versions of all the products lying around that they could go back to to kind of remind themselves of what Apple had done in the past and sort of draw on that for inspiration. So uh, this is partly at least sort of an internal project that sort of became this external product as well. Uh, Aaron, what was your take on this this book? It's been somewhat polarizing. It's well, it, it's it's polarizing because it's such a curious thing. I, I mean, this is very uh, it, this just stands out right now in the way Apple does things because it doesn't. It, it sort of fits in some respects the way Apple does things. I mean, the quality of the book is obviously really high. It's expensive, right? I mean, there's 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 stuff about, and it's celebrating design, which Apple obviously cares a lot about, but it sort of runs against some of the things that have to do with the way people see Apple. Apple's not a company that spends a lot of time looking backwards, and they've talked deliberately and specifically about that, and th yet this book is not only looking backwards, but it's a celebration looking backwards. I mean, and this took some serious investment. Uh, you know, not just, I mean, they invested design time into the book itself, like the actual physical properties of the book. They. They, you know, had photographers, you know, shoot all these all these products and 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 not just the products, but also some of the um, some of the manufacturing steps of, of these products. It, it's just a curious thing to me because it doesn't entirely fit the narrative of Apple for them to do something like this because in some respects it does it's all about quality and 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 sort of putting design on the very very top level of importance the way a company should view the things that it produces and yet it also you know feels kind of like navel gazing which isn't something that apple you know has a reputation of doing yeah i feel uh, it was a couple of things that kind of occurred to me about it i mean one is i kind of wonder why apple would do this right now it's at a time when you know apple's being criticized from a lot of different quarters for a lot of reasons and some of that criticism is legitimate and some of it isn't but um you know, there, there, there's a lot going on right now, and this feels a bit like an unnecessary, almost an own goal. I mean, that's probably a bit too strong, but it, it just feels like something Apple didn't have to do right now, and yet it's put it out there, and it's given people yet another reason to kind of come at it uh, over. Um, at the same time, I feel like it's something of a Rorschach test. It's a right. great example of how anything Apple does, um, there will be detractors, and there will be people who fawn over it. Um, 
and then there's others in the middle. And I generally try to be one of those in the middle. But uh, you know, there will be people that no matter what Apple does, they criticize it for being elitist, for being overly expensive, for being overly self-absorbed, for being self-important. You know, and, and that's certainly, you know, this feeds all of that. Um, and at the same time, there are those that will try to, you know, explain everything that Apple does and say why it's a good thing. And I've seen plenty of that over this book as well. The reality is nobody has to buy this book. It's entirely your choice. Right. It's not part of the Apple ecosystem where if you don't have it, you're somehow missing out. You know, it's a coffee table book. Um, and so in that sense, it's not important at all. And yet Apple put a press release out about it and has done a video and various other things. And, you know, it, it feels like a funny place to put resources right now, especially right now, just when, you know, Apple feels like it's in a bit of a lull between peaks to some extent and, uh, you know, could, could use being perhaps a bit more humble and, um, you know, a, a bit quieter around some of its own past achievements uh, as it builds up to, to new announcements and things itself. So I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. It's just been interesting to see how it's been received as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, if the attempt here was to change the narrative about Apple's design chops, um, it, it ignores the fact that Apple faces the harsh reality of uh, what have you done for me lately attitude. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's and that's right. always going to be the problem Apple has. And it's because they've had such huge products that have been so influential in the past. Everybody's looking for what comes next, and very rarely do people just sort of sit back and appreciate, right? <laughs> they don't just say, oh, look at all this right. amazing stuff Apple has done. What a great company. That's not the way they're thinking. They're thinking, man, okay, what have you got next? That's cool, And but we've seen that. I owned that five years ago. You know, I don't own it anymore, so what do you have for me now? And, uh, and you're not going to change the narrative with a retrospective that way. I, the other explanation, right. and this is maybe just the one that – that, that feels most right to me is that they just don't care. Like I, part of me wonders if this was just yeah. sort of a pet project of some of the key designers, Johnny Ive driving it is my suspicion. Right. Right. And they just thought, hey, you know what? Let's kind of recenter ourselves as a design team. Let's appreciate what we've accomplished. I mean, I could totally see this being like an internal motivation sort of thing. And then, uh, and then somebody, and then somebody around there thought, "Hey, let's." There are a bunch of other people who appreciate this too, so let's put it out there right. and turn it into a marketing yeah. product. And yet, the mm -hmm. real drivers behind the project, you know, Johnny Ive included, they may just not care. They don't care what people think because they're working on the next right. thing already. We just don't know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's quite possible too. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say one more thing about this, and I've forgotten what it was. Oh, one of the most interesting things, if you haven't seen it, there was a promotional video that came out about the book, and uh, it has some of the best footage I've ever seen, some of the only footage yeah. I've ever seen of Apple's prototyping and so on. Um, you know, all the machinery they have for creating prototypes and testing materials and lighting and various other things. So if you haven't seen that, go look for it. I'll try and link to it if I remember in the show notes. But uh, worth checking out, I think, in some ways more interesting than the book itself because it gives us a glimpse into the sort of design factory, if you like, at Apple, which we don't often get. Well, and it's worth noting that even if you don't, if like me, you don't know anything about industrial design other than the stuff you like, uh, Greg Koenig at AtomicDelights.com and, and uh, Lumalu, he, he praised it. He said, man, I would dream about having a place like this. So so it clearly is right. a, a special thing to get a peek inside. And, and uh, I think the video has been my favorite part of this. Yeah, yeah, and no, likewise. Okay, well, let's wrap up that segment there and uh, move on to our weekly pick. And so this week, it's my turn to recommend something. And uh, what I'm going to recommend is a movie. 
Uh, I do that a lot, it seems like. It's interesting. If you go back uh, through the list of what we've each recommended, I, I do tend towards the movies and Aaron tends towards other interesting objects and items. Um, but I'm recommending a movie and it's it's called The Light Between Oceans. Um, I recommended a different movie a few weeks back called Kubo and the Two Strings. And very different movies. One's a kid's movie, one's very much an adult film. Uh, and yet my wife and I saw them within a couple of days of each other. And they had this common thread, which was about kind of going deep and about truth and about... Um, really kind of taking things to the limit, not kind of uh, skimping out on hard stuff. And uh, so even though they're very different films, they have that in common. But this one is very much a grown-up film. Uh, it's an interesting story. It has uh, Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander are the two leads. Uh, Rachel Weiss is a sort of secondary character. Uh, and most of the other people probably won't be familiar to you. Uh, I think it was shot in uh, either Australia or New Zealand, and so it has lots of local actors, all of whom are very good. It's a fantastic cast all the way through. Um, the fundamentals of the story, and I'll try not to give too much away, are that there's a husband and wife. The husband's a lighthouse keeper. Uh, the wife has joined him after they've got married on this very remote lighthouse. Uh, they want to have children. They can't have their own children. And then suddenly uh, a boat washes up on the shore with a baby in it. And uh, they have to decide, you know, do they keep the baby? Do they report it? Uh, and really the rest of the movie is about the decisions that they make and the consequences of those decisions. And again, this is where the movie kind of doesn't pull any punches. It really, throughout the film, really lets you feel the decisions that they're making and the consequences of those decisions and doesn't kind of shirk any of that. And so it's a really profound film in many ways. And it's a rare example of a film that really shows people making real important choices and then shows how those consequences of those choices play out and how the characters deal with those consequences. So I won't say anything more about the plot than that. If you watch a trailer, you'll get more than that, certainly. But uh, highly recommended. It's It may still be in a movie theater or two where you are. Uh, I think it comes out on DVD and digital in January. So you might be able to pre-order it on iTunes or Amazon at this point or just wait till it shows up then. But uh, highly recommended film really uh i wouldn't say enjoyed it as such it's not that kind of movie but very very good filmmaking really thought-provoking stuff so we'll wrap up there for this episode thank you for joining us uh, we appreciate you being with us as always we welcome your feedback we welcome uh, ratings and recommendations on itunes in overcast uh on soundcloud anywhere else where you find and listen to the podcast we appreciate it and if you want to send us feedback via twitter or through the website please do so we always welcome hearing from you especially if you have requests for questions of the week or topics for us to cover we appreciate that input from our listeners so thanks for being with us again and we'll be with you again next week bye-bye